0: This year on May 9th, we celebrate the annual reminder of the Ascension of Jesus Christ, an event that took place 40 days after Easter. The day marks Jesus' exodus from the earth when he was caught up into a cloud and returned to heaven as glorified, resurrected humanity. The Bible tells us about this event at the end of the Gospel of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts. In Luke 24 50, we read, quote, then Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. End quote. In Acts 1 9, we read this quote, And when Jesus had said these things, as the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Of course, we don't celebrate the ascension like we do the birth of Christ, or his death, or his resurrection. But why is the ascension so often missing from the life of the local church and what are we missing by the oversight? To discover the historical and the theological significance of the ascension of Jesus, I talk with two pastors today on Authors on the Line who have each written books that I think will help us find answers to these important questions. First we begin with pastor and seminary professor Garrett Scott Dawson. Dr. Dawson is the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he's also the author of the book Jesus Ascended: The Meaning of Christ's Continuing Incarnation, which was published by TNT Clark back in 2004. The book was and remains one of the primary go-to theological works on the ascension. And From his office in Louisiana, I put Dr. Dawson on the line, and I began by asking him why so much of church history shows neglect for the ascension of Jesus Christ, and what makes the event so hard to grasp and so easy to neglect?
1: Well, I think that the idea of, of a guy, you know, a guy in skin and bones, um, wearing his robe, going up into the atmosphere and then into space just seems really fantastic to us. Uh, we get images of a Monty Python cartoon where there's a Jesus going up into the clouds, waving goodbye to everybody, and it's almost a little embarrassing for us as modern Christians you know, who've done, you know, seen space travel occur. We think it must be more spiritual than that. How could it really be something, something physical? And so we, we tend to want to minimize it, and we would like to think that maybe Jesus unzipped his skin suit when he went up and then just disappeared into heaven.
0: So there seems to be a, a really strong temptation in the Church to spiritualize the Ascension.
1: There really is, and you know, throughout the history of Western thought in particular, there's been a, a duality between the world of spirit or mind and the word of world of physicality or flesh. And so we think that because God is spiritual, um, you know, God is spirit, that there can be no materiality there. There can't be anything of of flesh and blood. It's got to be um, just ghostly. And so because of that duality in our thinking, we really don't have a full grasp on just how real and concrete um, the heavenly realm is going to be for us.
0: That's a good point. And um, with all of the appropriate stress on the physicalness of Christ in the Ascension, we're faced with a a problem of where. Where is Christ physically right now? Is he in this universe? Is he out of this universe? Uh, How would you answer this question?
1: Well, that's a great question, and perhaps the first way to answer it is to say that, that the Church across all times and places has always affirmed that Jesus, in the same body in which he was crucified, you know, John Knox says the self-same body. In that body he rose, and in that self-same body he ascended. Now his body was transformed. You know, after he, he died and was entombed, uh, he was resurrected, not just resuscitated. And I think it's Augustine that says this, this resurrection body was truly Jesus, but now outfitted, you know, rigged out for life in heaven. There he is, you know, fully enfleshed um, with a body even greater and, and more vivid than the one he had on earth. And it's in that body that he ascended in heaven. But at the very same time, the Church has always affirmed, you know, the continuing incarnation of Christ. We've also said um, space travel was not in view, to quote Douglas Farrow. Or John Calvin kind of quipped, what? Do we place Christ in a cottage among the stars? Um, we know that he's gone to a different realm, to the heavenly realm, into the dimension of, of God's presence that's beyond our capacity as uh, mortal beings bound to earth to be able to see or grasp. So in some ways, when you say, where is Christ now? You know, the, the answer from Scripture and the Creed is he's at the right hand of the Father, you know, he's um, on the throne of majesty, seated with his father, and reigning. But beyond that, we're really speaking in the realm of symbols, not because they're not true. They are true, but because this is a realm of reality beyond our description. You know, We don't have a ton of information about the heavenly realm. So I guess I would say, you know, mysteriously, Christ has gone to a different dimension. You know, He's not in the physical universe. You could never take a spaceship uh, to find him. And yet he hasn't stopped being fully incarnate, fully in skin and bone um, with his Father.
0: And that raises a second question. I mean, if if we cannot travel to Christ through space, then uh, why did he rise up in the clouds? I mean, was this necessary for him to enter this new realm of heaven? Or was this more of a picture for us to comprehend his transition?
1: Well, C.S. Lewis said that by ascending upwards, that evokes certain thoughts in us. You know, if he had descended down into the earth, we would have thought about all this a different way. But we know that literally up just depends on where the the earth is in its spinning. Up could be towards the planet Sirius, or up could be uh, towards the Pleiades, um, depending where we are. So it it can't be entirely literal, but because of Old Testament history, the cloud represents the glory of God. You know, his Shekinah glorious presence. Uh, It's the same cloud that came over Jesus in his transfiguration. So the cloud represents the heavenly realm intersecting with the earthly realm. And by going up, you know, human beings are hardwired to think of upwards as transcendent, as towards towards God, rather than down, you know, towards the earth.
0: Obviously, the Incarnation is important to you, and it shows in your pastoral heart that comes out in, in your book, Jesus Ascended. You really want Christians to live in the good of what this means for us as followers of the ascended Jesus Christ. And talk to someone who really has never considered the ascension, or they think it's too bizarre to really put much time or thought into. What's your best 30-second elevator pitch to a Christian who asks you why the ascension of Christ is important?
1: I think the ascension is so essential because it assures us that the Incarnation continues, Christ didn't just come among us for 33 years, slumming, as it were, and then when his work was done, say, whew, I'm glad that's over, I'm going to unzip this skin suit and get back to heavenly living, you know, leaving us here on our own. But he went into heaven with a pledge of all that we are going to become. You know, Tertullian, I think, was the first one who, who put it in that way. The Spirit in Scripture is the pledge of Christ's presence in us, but Christ's continuing body is the pledge of what we're going to have in heaven. So the Ascension tells us that Christ has not let go of our humanity. He truly wants to take human beings where we've never gone before into the very life of the triune God.
0: In in the book, you say the Ascension draws together the full range of Christ's work. Explain that for us. How does the Ascension draw together the full range of Christ's work?
1: It's interesting to think if you take the Apostles' Creed, there are 12 verbs about Jesus. Nine of them are past tense. One is present tense, and the two are are coming. The ascension is the last past tense verb about Christ. In other words, it's the last part of the story that occurred in this world. He ascended into heaven. And then so it takes us right to, so what is it going on now? He sits at the Father's right hand. So that last past tense verb in the creed, in the story of Jesus, is the hinge on which we turn from all that Christ accomplished in his birth, his sinless life, his death, and his resurrection, to what he's doing now. So I think it's really fun to think about if you take Calvin's categories, the you know, brilliant categories of Christ's work as prophet, priest, and king. When Jesus walked the earth, he was the true prophet. He was the word of God speaking you know, literally to us in a human voice. But now with his ascension, you know the hinge has turned, and he speaks to us, through his Holy Spirit that he pours out on his church. So, you know, first, the Spirit breathes out the words of Scripture, and then every present moment, the Spirit is the one who takes the words of Scripture and opens our hearts so we can see who Christ is according to the Scripture. If you think about Christ as the priest, you know, his finished work on the cross, which was the culmination of his sinless life, you know, that was the final and full and complete once and for all work of a priest who offered himself as the sacrifice to the Father to take away our sins. Uh, And the ascension represented his taking that offering into the Holy of Holies, really into the Father's presence. But it's also the hinge that means now Christ, at the Father's right hand, has priestly work. Not that he needs to die again, that's once and for all. But he now prays for us. He now sends his Spirit on us to convert us and to sanctify us. He now, as the great hymn says, pleads the merits of his blood for us. And then thirdly, you know, his kingship, um, the ascension marked you know, the lifting up of Christ, which John's Gospel tells us began with his, with his cross. You know, the king went to the throne of the cross, died, and rose, he was further glorified, and then when he ascended, he was truly you know, Lord and Christ. But after his ascension, he's now the king who reigns from the Father's right hand sustaining all things as he always has done, all of creation. Um, He is, as Paul says in Philippians 2, the name above every name, King of kings and Lord of lords.
0: Yeah, let's talk about this enthronement. Uh, On one hand, the ascension of Christ is him leaving the earth in a cloud. On the other hand, it it involves Jesus' post-resurrection entrance back into heaven. Um, Piecing together what we see in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, what happened upon Jesus' return to heaven in the flesh? Paint the scene for us of what was transpiring on the other side of the veil, so to speak.
1: Well, there are many ways to think about that from Scripture, and they're all beautiful and and all mysterious. I love how the Church Fathers uh, gather up from Psalm 24, the great psalm of of ascending to, to Jerusalem for worship. You know, the psalm says, lift up your heads, O gates, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. And that was a prayer in the beginning that the Lord would occupy his temple in Jerusalem and meet his pilgrim people there. But the church fathers saw that as an image of the ascension, uh, that the Lord was returning uh, into to the gates of heaven, you know, wearing triumphantly our humanity. And... I love the way they picture it. That the angels were saying, "Who is this King of Glory?" It looks like there's just a man coming back. Could that possibly be the King of Glory? And then the angels are astounded that you know, the man Jesus turns out to be uh, the full Son of God Himself, you know, still bearing our humanity, but now triumphant. Or you take um, the Psalm. I think it's from the from the 60s, where uh, the King returns triumphant. You know, with the spoils of his victory there, and you know, his spoils are all his people that he's, he's gathered. You know, we who are joined to Christ are gathered up in his train. Um, it, it's just so beautiful. So, so that we think of, you know, the ascension really tells us what, what is the destiny of man in Christ. You know, the world on its own our destiny is is degradation, is decay, is death, is despair, and our popular culture paints the degradation of man all around us. We, we can't rise above it, but in Christ, you know, heaven is is shattered open, and the true destiny of man, joined to Christ, is the glory of God the Father to be to be seated with Him, to be in His His presence. So, um, Jesus is going forward as the sign of what we could be in Him. It's it's simply beautiful.
0: Yes, that is a beautiful picture. And uh, in the book you say that uh, the Ascension protects us from certain things. The first thing it protects us from is from reinventing Christ. I mean, explain how the Ascension protects us from reinventing Jesus.
1: Yeah, the Ascension, it's important because in remaining the Jesus, he always was among us. Um, In remaining bodily as he ascends, Jesus can't be spiritualized into a Christ principle. He can't be turned into, well, the Christ in you, or the way you now incarnate the Spirit of Christ, like he incarnated the Spirit of God in his life. No, the Lord Jesus is still the same Jesus that walked beside his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, who touched the mother-in-law of Simon Peter and raised her, the same Jesus who spoke truth to the Pharisees who raised Lazarus from the dead. What happens is, because of the ascension, we are sent back to the Gospels as this is the information we have about who Jesus is. We're not to speculate beyond him into some spiritual being that we we add our thoughts to. The fact that he remains the Jesus that walked among us and yet has withdrawn forces the church to say, Okay, the real Jesus, the only Jesus we can know right now, is the one revealed to us in the Gospels. So it it causes us to have a Christ who is fully God and fully man, Um, the orthodox view of the Church that's been held through the centuries. It it puts the lie to all these reinventions of Jesus whenever some scholars want to pick and choose what he said according to a kind of spiritualized Christ.
0: And related to this, the ascension you write in the book protects us from over-identifying with our contemporary culture. Explain how how that works.
1: Well, when Jesus ascends, he's he's taking our humanity up into heaven. And so it's the promise of glory to us, but it's also a reminder of our destination. Paul in Colossians 3 says, you know, lift up your hearts, lift up your mind to where Christ is, seated in the heavenly places, because that's really where you are. In other words, don't set your mind on, on earthly things. It causes us to remember, oh, the final goal is not is not here. You, know, you see, I see it in my neighborhood, spray-painted across a, a child's tree fort, YOLO, which means you only live once. Um, and it's a word young people are using to say, since we only live once, let's do whatever seems exciting and, and meaningful and, and fun for us. But Christ Ascended says, you only live once and after that, the judgment. You know after that, the full life. it's both both hopeful and and frightening that we are so much more than just this world. Well, what I think is really wonderful about that is while we're not allowed to identify with our contemporary culture and the Ascension sends us heavenward, the fact that the ascended Christ is still in flesh also sends us back to the world to say, but we can't neglect the world and its agony. We can't withdraw from the world because it's skin and bone, it's breathing, sweating, thinking humanity that Christ keeps and still loves and still wants. So Christians are drawn out of the world in order to be sent to the world to give our lives uh, for the sake of the world just as Christ did. You know, it's to care for creation because Christ still loves creation. He's kept it in himself uh, it's to care for the lost and the least and the little ones, because Christ says, I'm still concerned about them. You know, so seek me in heaven for your for your life, and then go seek me uh, uh, in my poor and in the lost for your mission.
0: In Luke 24, 52, it seems odd to me that the disciples were filled with joy at the ascension of Jesus when he is leaving them. Um, Why did the absence of Christ actually bring them joy, and what does that mean for us as Christians today and for our joy in Christ?
1: Well, I think that Luke 24 story, that episode of Jesus departing and blessing, is simply stunning in the fact that the disciples then rejoice, because if you look at John's Gospel in chapter 16, just before Jesus' crucifixion, he's, he's predicting their sorrow. He says, in a little while you'll see me no longer and you will have sorrow. But then he says, in a little while longer, you'll see me again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. So you think, what happened that would cause his departure, on the one hand, to the cross, to cause them grief? We get that. But after his resurrection, his departure does not diminish their joy. And I think the real answer for that is, of course, the, the great love gift of the Ascended Christ to his Church is the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. He pours his own Spirit not only upon us, but into us, so that we actually can have a closer relationship with Jesus now than the disciples could uh, in the days of his ministry among us. And that is a big, bold statement.
0: Yes, that is a very bold statement indeed, and uh, I think we have time for one more question. And it's one of the most fascinating aspects of the Ascension for me personally, and uh, it comes in Luke twenty four fifty, 50, uh, which says that in the Ascension, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed his disciples. Um, some scholars suggest that there's a connection to Luke 24 and the Ascension with the high priestly blessing of Aaron that we read about in the Old Testament, specifically at the end of Numbers chapter 6. What's the significance, if any, of this connection to the Old Testament?
1: My friend Kelly Cappic at Covenant College has written a wonderful article on the Ascension and the Priestly Blessing of Christ, and it's his contention that when Jesus is lifting up his hands and blessing them in Luke 24, and the blessing is mentioned three times in that little episode, that Jesus is actually saying, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, the Lord be gracious to you. That he's giving Aaron's benediction because he now is the Lord In the flesh this is aaron's benediction fully present among us he is the lord's face shining on his disciples in resurrection ascended glory he is the peace that passes understanding in himself you know he is the grace of god in flesh and blood now triumphant over all the powers of evil and death so in in placing the name of the lord upon his disciples as he departs you know he is previewing and saying it's my name that you get in the Holy Spirit, you're going to be called a Christian, the one who is in Christ. Um, It's not just a Christ follower, it's it's an organically connected person into himself. He's the head, we're his body, um, connected to the ascended Lord.
0: That was pastor and theologian Dr. Garrett Scott Dawson from his church office in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He is the author of the book, Jesus Ascended, The Meaning of Christ's Continuing Incarnation, published in 2004. He has a forthcoming book coming out in August of 2013 titled, The Blessing Life. A Journey Toward Joy, published by IVP. Before we leave, I want to add a four-minute clip here from the, a recent conversation I had with Dr. Johnny Woodrow, who is a pastor, theologian, and the director of the Porterbrook Network, headquartered in the United Kingdom. He's also the author of a brand new and very helpful book titled Ascension, Humanity in the Presence of God, which is a short book, but it's a short, very helpful introduction to why the Ascension matters for the church and for the Christian life. It's a book he co-authored with Tim Chester, and I asked Woodrow what the Church loses when she neglects the Ascension. He joined us from the UK via Skype, and this is what he said.
2: I think one of the key things it misses is a right sense of rest and freedom, actually. Because what happens is, because of the cosmology that we tend to operate with, that Jesus has left the building, um, and therefore we continue his work. That's kind of what happens. Um, uh, he." And we get the body language ever so slightly um, mixed up. So we become the body of Christ and then effectively operate with a Jesus is bodiless. But we we're the ones that do the arms and legs stuff. That puts a tremendous weight on the church. It puts it puts a tremendous weight on people to to feel like they've got to transform the world and continue Jesus project. But actually, you see, what happens is another thing happens here that. That without a proper doctrine of the ascension, uh, that Jesus has in fact completed the kingdom, in that he is he has put humanity back in the presence of God. Now, what has to happen is that that gets revealed. Um, we we can come back to a, a view of uh, the church as much more like you get in Colossians, for instance, in Colossians chapter three. Paul says to the Colossians, you're struggling to work out how to operate in their context. Are they under Caesar? Are they uh, do, do they do they operate as some sort of Jewish um, mystic sect that really doesn't bother anybody? Is that what they're going to they're going to chase down angels or what? how are they how are they going to cope with being this minority group? And Paul says to them Look, you've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ now your now your life is hid with Christ on high it's, it's an appeal to the Ascension in fact it's an appeal to how every moment of the gospel has happened to them in Christ they've died with Christ been raised with Christ now they've been their life is hidden with Christ on high therefore what explodes out of that is bog standard ordinary Christian living they let the Word of Christ dwell amongst them richly they love each other they get on doing they, their life looks like that of the culture. Actually, it's recognizable in that they, they get jobs, uh, they get married, they have kids, um, but it's all done with a gospel rest and a sense in which we no longer have to look at the things of this world as like their ultimate things. Because I know my life is secure. Every, my humanity is summed up, completed in who Christ is. And now I can rest in the light of that. He's done the completing the humanity work for me. And now I can just demonstrate in my own small way living in the light of that rather than having to have a sort of theology that means that I do the work of Jesus. I was reading um, a paper by a guy called Gary Dedo, actually. It was quite interesting, on T.F. Torrance. Anyway, uh, it was a, a sideline that Gary Dedo uh, said, and I think the Ascension addresses that. He said that we, most Christians are functioning with this idea that God has set up a potential good life for them. And it's down to them to actualize that good life. Now, what that does is it says that God's up there a bit miffed that you really aren't living out all that you should be. And we're down here trying to find ways of making real what God has only really established in potential. So the, the idea that we're not what we ought to be, which is absolutely true, but often gets squeezed into that way of understanding how we relate to God. So what that leaves is it leaves God up there disappointed in most, non, in most Christians, sort of, you know, if they're honest, they feel like there's a, a finger wagging at them from up there. And all of the weight of responsibility becomes on them making real the gospel. You may even say incarnate the gospel as a way in which I think that that term has been misunderstood. Now, what that does is it completely remo- removes the humanity of Jesus from the situation. That He is the one that actualized the potential. He is the one that completed all that God wanted in in humanity. He did it. I live in the light of His actualization of what God designed for human life. I don't have to close the gap between God's sort of theoretical ideal of what humanity should be, and my and what the gospel does is for me is somehow just forgives me, is my safety net when I screw up. But ultimately, uh, it's, a, it's just a big advert uh, or a big invitation to try and realize what God has only potentially made available.
0: That was Dr. Johnny Woodrow, a pastor, a theologian, and the director of the Porterbrook Network who lives in the U.K. He is the author of the new book, Ascension Humanity in the Presence of God, published this month by Christian Focus Publications. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.